All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, letting me into your office. I know this is a busy time of the year for you and your staff. So I appreciate uh, the time and um, the interest in having a conversation. It's great to have you on. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having us. There's never a bad time to be discussing good legislation, let people know how important they are. Agreed. We were talking a little bit offline just before we started recording about, um, I think, what, what probably was leading to the genesis of your interest in the bill we're going to talk about today, 1802. You were speaking about your brother. I think the setting was probably late 80s, early 90s. Um, maybe we can just kick it off from there and you can articulate uh, who he was, what you saw, what his involvement was in the military. I sure think. So uh, my my oldest brother, I have nine brothers and sisters. My oldest brother uh, joins the military right out of high school within about two months. And uh, he certainly was my, my favorite brother. So I, I idolized him. I certainly look forward to, to any wisdom he could impart on me. And he joins the Air Force and... Uh, almost immediately goes overseas and he's stationed in, in Manila. Uh, that was the first time I actually knew anybody that was in the military, though uh, I want to say maybe about a month or so after that, two of my cousins that live uh, in Progreso, which is right on the border, they they lived on my, my grandmother's little ranch, which was backed up from Military Highway 281 down to the Rio Grande River. They both joined, I think it was the Navy. Uh, so that was the first time I, I, I knew people. And certainly growing up in a household where I had cable TV and I watched CNN and I could always aware of, of world conflicts and growing up in the cold war, you always knew war was always a possibility. And I, I took great pride in the American superpower, um, had, had all the, the best machines, the best planes, the best, uh, naval vessels. Uh, we had a good, strong standing army. And I always felt a source of pride, maybe an entirely foolish testosterone filled view of what America should be. And maybe reading too many GI Joe comics, uh, that we could impose power, or certainly if nothing else, have a sphere of influence wherever we wanted to at any time. And to me, I thought that was the best way that we could ensure safety for the free world, as opposed to the those that were influenced by the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, you know, a few years later, when I'm about to, to graduate from high school, I take the ASVAB, score very well, I'm thinking about joining the military. Uh, my brother says, no, no, if you're going to join the military, you need to go in as an officer. Do not do what I did. Uh, at that point, he was already in college, he'd gotten out. He said, you, you need to go in as an officer uh, because you'll have a lot more freedom, a lot more, a lot more options. You could go career. Uh, growing up in the era of Top Gun, I certainly looked at that as an option. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't pass the physical when it came to an eye exam. And it, you had to have perfect 20-20 vision back then. You could not have uh, corrected vision, either with uh, glasses, contacts, or LASIK at the time. So I, I didn't join after all. Uh, but about six months later, two of my friends joined the Army. And this is about six months before the first Persian Gulf War. So since then, I, I've always had a keen eye on, on what happened to to our friends and family when they came back from a military theater. And it was not always an easy transition to get back into civilian life. Uh, one of my friends who was a radio operator, uh, which seems like innocuous duty, except in military theater, the person that has the radio will likely be the first target for any assault. Take out the radio, you take out communications, and you can't radio in for help. You certainly can't radio in for overhead uh, forces to to pro provide cover for you. And he came back uh, both with physical injuries and also trauma. He had PTSD. Uh, his family, for a number of years, had a very hard time being able to relate to him, to communicate with him. Uh, it just wasn't the same. And he ended up moving away from South Texas and moved to Boston. And uh, 
that that was really the first time that I noticed what war really was. If you can sp- speak about him and and the symptoms that you noticed, his family noticed. What what, did, what was different in him when he came back from from theater? So the the most prominent notice uh, a change in in. And disposition. He was always a very fun-loving, very funny, outgoing character. Uh, an incredible tennis player, very athletic. Uh, life of the party. When he came back, he was disconnected. Uh, didn't want to engage in communication often. It, he was certainly happy to see old friends, but very quickly uh, subsided from conversation. Um, and it, it reminded me when I was maybe about nine or ten when I was in the the Royal Ambassadors at, of a local church, we went on a, a large statewide camping trip at on the Baylor College campus, I think in their like athletic fields, uh, and being told, do not talk to this uh, this boy's father because uh, he served in Vietnam. They didn't say what he had, they didn't, they didn't know what the diagnosis was, but they certainly knew that um, he had a, a disposition. And I'm glad he was there. He was certainly doing his best to engage that was the first time I saw somebody who just wasn't engaging. Hmm. So when I reconnected with my friend, when he came back from the first Persian Gulf War, uh, I saw some of the same, same things at, in my mind, I didn't really have a name yet as to what it was, but certainly over the years, we've been able to read up on literature and learn that, you know, PTSD is not uncommon for many people that are in the military theater and they are either themselves subject to any kind of violent impact an explosion uh, or they see very traumatic events, whether they are the the cause of the event or they witness an event. It could be the death of a colleague, could be the death of, of a small child incidental to uh, the action that's taking place in the streets of a military theater. Do you know what specifically triggered the PTSD in your friend? Was it was it witnessing something? Was it a, some other experience? The only thing I've been able to get from him is he suffered anxiety for quite a bit of time. I, and I suspect that was largely from the pressure of the type of job that he had. Yeah. Uh, he was a radio operator, which meant he was the communications liaison for his team. And, and while he was certainly armed, his job was not to necessarily fire the weapon. It was to report what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, who they're engaging with, from what direction. And it's his job to make sure to call for help when they needed it. And yeah. that's a lot of pressure to put on a young soldier. Uh, and I, I think having the weight of the lives of of your companions. He never said if any of his friends got hurt or killed, uh, but that experience weighed heavily on him for a number of years. Hmm. And from there, he ended up joining law enforcement in Boston, and he's still, I believe, in that profession now. That was a, you know, I think in terms of timing, that's probably something like 30 years ago, right? I mean, it was. By, that would have been point. probably 1990 or so, and maybe 91, when the first Persian Gulf, under the first President Bush. And you know, that was the first wave of our more recent veterans to come back uh, with these conditions. And certainly uh, we were engaged, but we used a lot of air power at the time that was able to to rest a quick, uh, decisive, I guess, a victory, if you want to call it that, hmm. uh, for what happened before there was you know, some some peacetime. But that didn't stop us from continuing to to build up military forces. And, you know, fast forward to 9-11, which is what, 2001. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm in law school at the time. You know, we we're the victims of, of a, a terrible attack uh, on our shores, and immediately there's a strong sense of patriotism, uh, maybe even some nationalism to make things right and protect our lands, protect our, our fellow Americans. Uh, so everybody was on board with that, and our our forces went went abroad. 
And there was, I, I can say, I was certainly one of those folks that felt strongly that America should stand up for itself. Hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the way the the battle was designed or conducted. Uh, more importantly, did we have a plan for when our soldiers were going to come home? Yep. And that was an extended battle, uh, which essentially we have been in nonstop for about 20 years. Yep. Uh, yeah, the Biden administration has announced that we will be pulling back forces and really trying to bring everybody home by August of this year. But we should really think about how many veterans uh, we have now and how many soldiers we still have out in the field. And the, that that's really what what makes me think about this being a much broader problem than we might think. So when, when people are coming back from battle, uh, they're going to suffer both physical and emotional and, and psychological trauma. And we haven't really found a good solution for that. Uh, I, I'm an avid reader, so about four or five years now, I've been kind of studying uh, different types of, of old treatments to see if there's a way to, to bring them back. I've always found that we may overlook something in, in exchange for looking at something that's newer and shinier, uh, or perhaps you know, something that the pharmaceutical industry would prefer us to look at. So yeah. the two major treatments that we use now to treat veterans with PTSD or Zoloft and Prozac. Uh, and that regimen hasn't changed much in probably 15, 20 years. I want to say right around five years ago, I started reading a little bit more about psychedelics. I have never used a narcotic in my life. The strongest I ever had, I think, with a, a bad toothache. Uh, I think I had a crown. I was given Tylenol with codeine. Didn't like it. Didn't really seem to do much for me. I just kind of stuck to, to Advil. After that, uh, I, I'm an attorney. I used to be a felony prosecutor. But I I don't smoke. I don't. I rarely drink. Um, certainly don't do any drugs. But I was intrigued as to why we had developed a number of drugs back in the 60s and 70s, and they became very popular. And clearly, they were uh, misused or you know used off label for entertainment purposes, and very quickly uh, scheduled. Uh, Calcified as Schedule One controlled substances, so that we could get them off the streets, so that people wouldn't abuse them and hurt themselves. But it made you think, like, well, why did we develop them in the first place? And more recently, we're finding out that well, the military certainly had an interest in some of these, in particular LSD, um, for a number of reasons. Um, but we haven't really been looking at what possibly it was that we missed out on generations of of scientific study that that has gone unresearched. Yep. And I think the fresh look that different parts of our, our planet, in particular, I'm talking about studies in the in Ireland, in the UK, Israel, and in Australia, as to the appropriate types of uses of psychedelics. Uh, I know Australia is very good on, uh, very big on studying microdosing LSD for productivity. Uh, they're even finding that there's got potential uses for people that have ADHD. Uh, in the United Kingdom, in Israel, they're looking at both psychedelics such as MDMA, uh, psilocybin. Uh, for different applications. And I, I don't want to say that Israel uh, is out there. They're, they're a very conservative country. Yeah. And that they're studying this, you know, why aren't we studying it? Well, since then, a, a few research universities in this country have begun researching uh, MDMA. That's certainly one, one possible psychedelic that could be used for, for treatment. Uh, recently, we have legalized for treatment uh, ketamine, uh, which is known as a tranquilizer. Hmm. Uh, so that's a different application than it was normally intended to be used for. When I was a, a prosecutor, uh, Mike kind of developed a, a veterans court, uh, a diversion court, 
uh, first of its kind for the area uh, because we saw a need and the need was we had a lot of veterans that returned home and were having a very hard time adjusting to life in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, they were self-medicating typically with either controlled substances or alcohol, uh, abusing both uh, to drown out the demons that they were living with. Uh, and in divert court, the types of cases that we saw were either DWIs, where they were abusing alcohol, uh, possessions, which is, you know, you have cocaine or some other drug, sometimes harder than cocaine with them. Uh, and also abusive offenses where they're being charged with either assaults or assaults, family violence, or where they're fighting with their family members. Many times when the family members were trying to restrain them or keep them from going out and abusing themselves because their family members cared. They didn't want them to, to get drunk, to hurt themselves, to, to cause harm. And what that shows is, despite the help they got in the divert court, we can certainly try to modify behavior. But are we really finding a cure or a treatment? Everything we've done since 9-11 with our veterans has really been trying to maybe correct symptoms or you know, cover those up. What are we doing to actually treat the problem? Yeah. And I think that's where psychedelics have a real chance of letting somebody confront their demons and with a therapist work through them, face them, and try to get past them. It's interesting we're having this conversation in Texas, in Austin specifically, but but in Austin, in uh, Texas generally. I have a separate podcast that is about this city. And recently in the past few months, I've had um, a few interviews related to psychedelic work and you can feel in the zeitgeist to me as an American that there's a shift a sort of a, a mental shift or a acceptance shift towards these substances just because a lot of people are suffering and a lot of people are in pain and I think for the description you were just giving about somebody who is in this state and begins to abuse some sub substance to I think I think you said to deal with the the demons or address their demons people generally don't act that way unless they're at their wits end. Um, they don't know what else to do. And so they turn to what ends up looking like an egregious way of living uh, to stop their psychological suffering. My understanding is that Bill 1802 is, um, I guess, why don't I back up and just let you go into you your position now that you have in the in state government. Um, the first question I would have for you has is has this been on your mind for a long time? You know, in offering something like this, writing legislation that I know uh, is now being discussed in this in the um, in the House uh, in the Senate, or what what kind of um, made you initially go ahead and actually put your name on something that that could begin to help people? It's probably not usual for a, a, a younger member of any legislative body to um, to take a giant leap uh, and ask their fellow, fellow members that have been there for sometimes decades uh, to take that leap with them. And, and the leap, in my opinion, isn't so high so much as it, it's it's different. Uh, for the past few sessions we've debating we've been debating medical cannabis use, uh, compassionate use. We, we found. Uh, Anecdotally, and some studies that medical cannabis, for example, helps children with autism, certain types of autism. And getting that adopted in our body when we have 
witness after witness saying, we think this helps. I've seen it help. I'm giving it to my child or I'm taking it myself. Yes, I know I'm breaking the law, but I am in a dire situation and I would like you to help me legalize it. Uh, we're having that conversation now and it's taken us decades to get there. Hmm. I have never been one to, to be a, a, an advocate for um, legalizing uh, marijuana. Uh, not not so much because I'm 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 against it or or it's it's smell so much as um, which I don't necessarily like, um, <laughs> um, but more so that I don't want people to feel the need to escape the problems of their life. Yeah, if someone's doing it recreationally because they like how it makes them feel or they want to put on weight uh, or they want to uh, just relax at the end of a long hard week. And I'm not going to judge. I think that's perfectly acceptable. Mm. Uh, but I think to answer the question of why would you want to escape your life is one that we should be asking daily, not just from our policymakers, but from our our spiritual advisors, our, our priests, our, our spouses, our friends. Uh, what is it about our lives that have gotten so complicated, so hectic, so rushed mm. uh, that we feel the need to have to escape? I don't propose this legislation to help people escape so much as I want to have people find something to go towards, and and the towards is is a solution. Yeah. I'm trying to give people hope. Uh, we have a lot of people that have suffered from trauma. Uh, we have sexual assault survivors. We have child abuse victims. We have accident survivors where they actually physically were hurt by an accident or they witnessed somebody else be hurt by a traumatizing act. And these are images that are ingrained, burned in people's minds. And they can't get past it. They can't live a normal life. It might be a, for a short time. It might be for decades. And it's time they're missing with their family and their loved ones, a time where they're not able to grow as, as a human. And I think it's important that we should do what we can to provide medical providers the tools that they need to make someone whole. The reason why 1802 focuses on our veterans that have PTSD is for two, two very important but independent reasons. One, I strongly believe that our elected officials in this state and in this country genuinely have an affection for our veterans. I really do. We may disagree why they were sent to a particular country to do battle, but they will all agree that they've done so at, at great personal risk. Hmm. And we, we owe them a duty to help them transition back. And in this state, we've passed legislation to help uh, both veterans and the the widows and uh, of veterans, uh, for example, financial help in that they can get tax exemptions on their their property. For example, uh, as a country, we've we've done our part to pass bills to help veterans get college credit or even pass on that that savings to their grandchildren so that those children can benefit financially uh, by getting a discount on their tuition for college so that they can have a better life. And that's I think what shows that. Elected officials really do care. And if they're going to care about somebody, they should care about veterans for one very important reason, that we're losing about 20 veterans every day to suicide in this country. That's 6,000 every year. Since 2001, that's 114,000 veterans. That's incredible. And, and I remind our members when we're having our discussions, I said, that's that's almost as large as our legislative districts. It's an astounding number. And for all the billions that we've spent on, 
on our ending, our endless wars, why aren't we spending a larger fraction of that on treatment for veterans? Look at our homeless population that suffers from PTSD and see how many of them are veterans. And it's sometimes easy to dismiss uh, because we'd rather just not see it so we don't think about it uh, because we have our own busy lives. Well, what I'm trying to do with 1802 is to address the second part of the important reasons why we should why we should be doing this. We are at a crisis level now. When we're losing that many veterans every day, we can't afford to wait for the federal government to try to come together to enact good policy. As we see now, the U.S. Congress isn't passing laws on a weekly or monthly basis. Rather, they're filing omnibus legislation where everybody gets a little bit of a say in it um, for it to pass. And that's an approach to doing public policy. I don't think it's the best approach, hmm. especially when it's a problem that people should agree on addressing. So if the U.S. government will not be addressing this problem, Texas would like to step in to help. Yeah. This, it, it's, first of all, I should say, like, just to be candid, I, ad, I really admire you for doing this because I, I know in this state there is an enormous stigma. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and so I'm, I'm not a, a native-born Texan. There is a reputation of Texas of being, in, in certain elements, deeply conservative and resistant to change and new newness, new ideas. I think that is a false idea, largely, especially in the changing Texas that we now live in. But I have to think you knew you were going to face a lot of blowback. There is a stigma, no doubt, that exists among a lot of your colleagues related to drugs generally. And now you're talking about, you know, psychedelics or empathogens being uh, legally offered to people in the state. That being said, I have always thought since I have, have personally got interested in this subject that Texas is a, it is a, it seems to me to make a lot of sense to have this state be one of the leaders in this, these initiatives because of its, as you mentioned, its love and respect for its veterans. Um, when did you decide you were going to put your name on this? And did you expect your credibility to be attacked or questioned when you're implementing or, or suggesting that these kind of initiatives and uh, new ideas be discussed and, and potentially brought into law? I think the the one thing I've learned being in the Texas House is that uh, it didn't come with a handbook necessarily on on what we can or can't do, should or shouldn't do. And because nobody told me I shouldn't do it, <laughs> well, that just gave me a little bit more freedom. You know, I, I there are 150 members of the Texas House, and different people have priorities. We started working on this bill in in the late fall. And we filed it fairly early on. And all through the summer, and I want to say even starting last calendar year, when I would run across a, a very good article, I would forward it to my chief of staff. I said, you got to read this. And, and I still do it. I still get uh, those articles because I, I read a lot hmm. uh, or it, it pops up on my feed board. And I uh, like, oh, here's you know somebody studying this. Let's see how this works. See, what, what did they learn? How can we incorporate this so we can become better with our, with our legislation? Uh, we knew we were going to do this. And we felt it was urgent. I, I thought that this session would be one where we could open the discussion. I thought maybe mm. we could get a hearing uh, of, of significance and really start to work 
on spreading this message, not just amongst those in my caucus, but those of the other party as well. And the reason why I say that is the Texas House um, didn't change its numbers, meaning that the conservative base was in the majority. Mm -hmm. And typically they would also control the chairmanship of a committee that would hear this type of legislation. Mm -hmm. So there are quite a number of obstacles to get a bill passed into law in the state of Texas. Lots of checks and balances to make sure really only the really, really important things uh, get done. Typically the important things to the majority party. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is good legislation. We're a very, very bipartisan state. And I thought that I could win some people over if nothing else, but because of my personal relationships with them. Uh, So I knew that was always something that was going to be at risk. And the reason why I point this out is Early on when I filed this bill and I started moving it, I first reached out to my delegation uh, in South Texas. We're all Democrats. We're all friends. And I say, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this piece of legislation. I would like your support, meaning I would like you to be a co-author on my bill. The more signatures you have, the more credibility you'll have with the, the chairperson of a committee that the bill will be referred to so that they will set it for a hearing, just for a hearing. And uh, the first thing that one of my friends sent back was uh, – um, an emoji of a mushroom and followed by another friend who sent a, a gif of a mushroom. Um, so I thought, okay, this is going to be a much harder battle than I thought. <laughs> and, and, I, and I have to check myself. Of course, they haven't read what you've read. Okay. How can we summarize into a digestible form, either written or in talking points so I can start explaining what this does? Uh, and I, I started doing that on the floor early on. And some folks just kind of gave me this blank stare like, are you trying to legalize mushrooms? To which I say, I, I am not. I am not. Um, I said, how about I drop off some literature and we touch base again tomorrow? Okay, they're fine. They, nobody was a no, but there were a lot of very quizzical looks. Yeah. Um, this session, I am a vice chairman of two committees, uh, which would seem to imply I have a little bit of credibility, at least with somebody. Uh, well, at least I would hope so. And maybe that's what gave me the the courage to, to go forward of like, well, I, I filed a number of bills, other other bills that are very good pieces of legislation. This one is special to me uh, because I think in my heart of hearts that this this bill could save lives. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's not something that very many policymakers can say that they have accomplished. Um Even if this bill were not to be enacted, but began the conversation, that's how I began this session. I thought, you know, let's let's start this discussion. You know, we've talked about medical cannabis. You know, we've talked about hemp and CBD oil. Can we have the courage to go a little bit deeper? And let me show you that the science is there. Mm. Uh, And not everybody here is always receptive of science or or reason, but they are open to ideas that save lives because we do have that one shared goal in mind of making people's lives better. And they at least were willing to give me the time to sit down and talk with me. And the more I talk with people, the more on board they became. Soon after a while, people were coming up to me saying, I've heard about this bill of yours. Tell me what it does. I don't know why my staff's talking about it. Uh, And soon thereafter, and and this is where the bill takes uh, a new turn, I get a text message. Uh, from a lobbyist who says, uh, you know, Representative, uh, Governor Perry would like to set up a Zoom and talk with you about one of your bills. 
I thought I was getting pranked because it was from a number <laughs> that I didn't know. I thought, ah, yeah. oh, very funny. Which one of my, my friends got their staffer to text me. Um, so I called. Nope, sure enough, it was the lobbyist. Um, turns out it was lobbyist who used to be a communications uh, officer for the governor, worked in, in his staff intimately and was reaching out as, as a friend. Yeah. So we set up a Zoom meeting uh, a couple of days later and I was astounded at the level of knowledge that former governor Rick Perry has on this topic. Absolutely floored. So as it turns out, uh, Governor Perry, when he was a governor, uh, ran into a, a, a Navy SEAL in California when he was out there uh, conducting some kind of visit. Uh, I don't know if it was at the airport or the hotel exactly where it was, but he, he was relating that he ran into the soldiers and turns out that he was from Texas. He said, well, if you're ever in the Austin area, uh, as Governor Perry is likely to do, uh, stop by the mansion and say hi. And sure enough, you know, several several months later, uh, that, uh, that Navy SEAL – uh, stops by and the governor gets a call from the, the the trooper at the security gate saying there's a soldier here to see you and he said oh send him in and he lived with the governor for about six months and firsthand the governor learned uh, what it means to come back with with PTSD uh, since then the governor has explored that topic researched it himself has I think staff members that are always keeping uh, an eye on on the veterans that he has met, and became very close to uh, different organizations. One being uh, the nonprofit called Vets, which was for, formed by Amber and Marcus Capone. Uh, Marcus was a former Navy SEAL, you know, SEAL Team Six. Mm. The, these are the guys, top notch. These are the ones that, that we count on, and and his job was to set up the 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 detonation devices to open up walls and doors. And even though they, they moved to safety, he certainly has suffered uh, trauma uh, to his brain from those explosions, not to mention the, the war effort itself. And when he came back, he wasn't all there. Uh, his wife uh, was having a very hard time with him. And he knew that uh, he said his, his life, his family life was pretty much over. And, he reached that crisis point. And the more and more veterans we talk to, they all say they have reached that point where there is no other solution other than taking your own life because life has just become that painful. You can't escape it anymore because the demons are always there. The pain is always there. And so he took a leap of faith uh, and saved some money and went to Mexico to receive therapy that included psychedelic treatments and he will never use the word cure but he will tell you that his life is enriched uh, he's finishing his mba now from usc his he and his wife are having a great life together they're happy they're they have purpose they're engaged with other veterans that have gone through this and that and many who want to go through it and what that tells me is that there's there's a need not just for treatment, but more importantly, there's a need for hope. Because if, if they know there's a possibility for a, a treatment, a solution in the future, maybe they can hold on a little bit longer. Yeah. It's funny in talking about this, how, right? So, so this brings together so many currents and it's like a confluence of events in, in the U.S. where 
that are working against this momentum of, of implementing uh, solutions like this. One, I think, is which is prevalent in the culture generally, it definitely is prevalent in Texas, the idea that of believing in personal responsibility and believing that we are the agents of our own psychological state and that if you have a problem, it's up to you to resolve it. I think, though, anecdotally, and you just gave a couple of examples, if you do have personal experience interacting with people with severe mental illness, you do realize, you come to realize that it is not a moral shortcoming or a moral failing. Um, It's something that they simply just have had some effect that has led them to that point in their life and they don't know what to do with it. I'm curious for you specifically, when you've mentioned a couple of times what an avid reader you are, what convinced you that the, the, these options, and maybe you want to go through, uh, you know, what psychedelics are, which of, which of the psychedelics or pathogens you think might be effective in, in helping veterans or people who experience trauma. What what was the trigger in your mind? What did you read? What what kind of, you know, statistics or anecdotes did you come about in the literature that made you think like, man, there, there's really some potential options here for helping people. You know, I I may come from a, a slightly u- unique uh, background uh, when I was. Uh, an attorney, having left the DA's office, I was asked by the court to essentially be a, an attorney ad litem for patients at the local state hospital. Hmm. So when when someone is having a mental episode, uh, a family member can call uh, the police department and they will intervene for a mental health uh, intervention. And uh, police officers have a special unit dedicated to that, both in, in, in my county anyway, it was uh, the sheriff's officers, certain police officers for each major city uh, knew how how to talk uh, with these, these possible patients because they are not arresting them, but they are depriving them of liberty while they take them into a hospital to be evaluated as a potential danger to themselves or to others. Hmm. Uh, I grew up knowing somebody like that uh, he was uh, the best. He was the older brother of my best friend when I was in middle school, and uh, one of his friends uh, dropped some acid into his whiskey, which he drank, and essentially fried his brain. And I knew him for years. I knew him before he suffered from that, and I saw what he was like afterwards. I, I would see him shake his head, thinking there was a demon in him. Uh, people being called in from the state hospital to put him in a straitjacket and watching his mother cry um, because she loved him and she couldn't help him. So I, I grew up seeing that uh, at all, all the time uh, saying, definitely say no to drugs, uh, especially with your friends who you don't know what they're going to be doing yeah. uh, to your drinks. Uh, one of the reasons why I've never used drugs, uh, but the hospital where he was taken to when I was the attorney at Lightham appointed to these cases is where I worked. So for a couple of hours every week, I'd go down, we'd have these small hearings with, uh, with a county judge uh, and they rotated. Uh, uh, one of the prosecutors would be there and myself representing the best interest. And I would interview the patients uh, all the time before our hearings. And, and my questions uh, became uh, a little bit more like, like a doctor would ask. Certainly I'm not a, a doctor at all or, or any kind of, uh, clinical psychotherapist, but I would ask questions, you know, you know, well, do you know who you are? Do you know why I'm here? Do you know what this event is going to be? We're going to have a hearing. Do you know what it's, you know, what's at stake? And to varying degrees, I would get answers that would really help me prepare a defense for them. And at, at the end of it, my choices were either to fight for their immediate release 
or to concur with the assessment of the doctor and the, the request of the district attorney, which is no, they need to stay here for two weeks or 90 days, depending on what the petition was. So I became very close to uh, the doctor that was ahead of there. His name was Dr. David Moron, uh, a Yale-trained, sorry, Harvard-trained doctor who made it his life's work to work with patients of mental illness hmm. and just got a chance to, to see him, talk to him often. And I got to learn the medicine that they were treating people with. And it wasn't intentional. Uh, I was doing it mostly to pay the bills. I was, I was a young attorney in private practice, but but it stuck with me. It, and I, I worked there for about three years. So I got very good at the job and pretty soon I could kind of guess what the medication was that any particular patient was on and make the appropriate recommendation to the judge. And sometimes my patients went home and sometimes they came back. Sometimes they were there multiple times. But many times I would see those same patients in criminal courts. And I remember one time having to intervene with another attorney who was representing a, a lady who I knew to be a, one of my former patients and, and tell her, do you know that this patient uh, suffers from the following uh, mental illness? And she kind of like, no, I, I didn't know that. And I'm thinking, how could you not know that? Yeah. <laughs> Look at her. Yeah. You know, she's chewing her fingers. <laughs> um, and at the time, that that lawyer had struck a deal to just have her plead a time served so she can go home, which is all the patient wanted. And I said, this patient does not have the mental capacity to agree to anything, much less to commit a crime. She just doesn't know any better. Um, afterwards, uh, the... The judge asked me, she saw me talking to them, like, what is it? And, and, and it turns out it was a judge who knew this patient. The patient had changed her look a little bit over the years. She says, oh, yeah, I remember her. Hmm. What can we do? Well, there are other options other than incarcerating or, or freeing somebody. They could actually get mental health treatment. Uh, and sometimes you offer the mental health treatment in lieu of any criminal charges. Hmm. So as long as you're going to go see the you know your doctor, your therapist, you're, you're on your medication, you're staying on track, the charges can be dropped. So it's an incentive. Um, anyway, th that's where my professional dabbling into mental illness took place. Um, I, I know that's a, a long answer to to your question, but it, it's it's if you've ever worked with people who suffer from mental illness, you know they cannot pull themselves up from their bootstraps. Yeah, uh, which is itself a very hard thing to do physically. Uh, if you've ever tried to pull your bootstraps <laughs> from their your bootstraps. Um, they don't know all the options that they have sometimes because their mind won't let them formulate those thoughts or those solutions or the people they're with don't offer solutions because it's much easier for some people to move away from somebody who has mental illness to walk on the other side of the sidewalk metaphorically of their lives than to help them get the help that they need. And some people um, want to protect them and don't want them to relive trauma. You better just to you know, to move on or to cover it up or you know move past it. You know you don't think about it. When sometimes what they might need to do is actually face their problems, uh, but that comes at a cost. Uh, any person who has suffered severe trauma, in particular PTSD, when they try to face uh, the trauma, to face the demons, to face what is troubling them, that what's always gnawing at them that they can't quite escape, not even with, with sleep. It's a very scary place. Uh, and that's why I think psychedelics offer a possible avenue for treatment. Uh, 
psychedelics differ from psychotropics. Uh, psychedelics allow a, a, a patient to, in a way, separate themselves from the experience where they can observe the experience, they can describe the experience, they can see it, uh, they can smell it, they can talk about it. Uh, and while they will still be emotionally affected, they can continue to do so without shutting down. Uh, and the research I found shows that for some patients, some types of psychedelics help the brain to reset. And that might be what some of these patients need, uh, a second chance, mm. so to speak. No. The, uh, you don't strike me as a hippie. And I, I, have, uh, I have an aunt who was, you know, I think involved in that, that community. And uh, I... I think that the more people, the, the problem to me in getting this more widespread, getting these ideas more widespread and accepted in the culture is, is one largely of education. And it, you went through a little bit of um, speaking about, talking about uh, Bill 1802, how people seem to be interested in it. And the more you were able to educate people about the specifics of it, the more it sounds like amenable people were to at least having a conversation about um, what you might like to do with it. Let's talk about the bill specifically. I, maybe I'll start with a simple question. What are you proposing at the root that this bill offer to the citizens of Texas? Information. So uh, 1802 has two components. Um, I'll describe the easier one. There has been research done on ketamine because it's it's legal, and I've certainly met a couple of doctors who use ketamine in their therapy to address PTSD, and they work with patients, typically veterans, um, and they see them often. They're able to to use as ketamine as a as a tranquilizer. It, it's used by anesthesiologists. There has been more recent research, uh, uh, more wealth of it worldwide on MDMA, and. Recently, it, it's been undergoing clinical trials to see how effective it can be towards PTSD in general. I believe it's at the phase three level. Yeah. And with luck, if it keeps going on track in a couple of years, it will likely achieve FDA clearance as a breakthrough medication. So it'll, it won't be legalized, but it will be given essentially a, an exemption so that doctors can use it in a clinical setting, in a hospital setting, to treat people who have PTSD, assuming that the trials keep going the way they have been going. It would be fantastic for HHSE, the state, and the FDA to put together the research necessary to compare the different types of treatment. So again, information. The first part of the bill is the bigger portion, the, the part that will likely get the attention. It will propose a, a clinical study with a Baylor College of Medicine in collaboration with a veterans hospital, most likely the one at, and in Houston, uh, to study the effects of psilocybin on veterans who have PTSD. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. Uh, the first is veterans uh, that we have spoken with and some of the literature we've seen on anecdotal use of psilocybin show that it can be a very effective psychedelic in treating a number of things. It is currently being studied to treat depression, uh, which is a mental illness. 
and it, I think, has that designation right now by the FDA to be used as a, a treatment for it. So it's those studies are underway, but it has never been used to study its effect on patients that have PTSD. Well, as it turns out, veterans like the idea, the concept of using psilocybin as opposed to um, a lab-created psychedelic, such as MDMA. And the reason why is, is in two parts. One, it's natural. It grows. You derive it from a, a natural plant. Um, and they feel that that's maybe a more acceptable use. Uh, the, the veterans that I've spoken with on this topic are all very conservative, <laughs> very politically conservative. And they have not used drugs. They don't use drugs. They do not, they're not interested in taking medical cannabis to address their problem. Uh, but they are open to the idea of psilocybin because they believe, because it's natural, uh, that it will also not be an addictive narcotic. So this study would be the first of its kind for this purpose on the planet. And that's an example of looking at a problem and finding a clever solution. And by what I mean by clever is addressing something that we haven't done for decades that we could have been doing. <laughs> and it just involves giving a little bit of consideration to a wild idea. And the wild idea is this. We're in Texas. This hasn't passed in any other state. Far more progressive states than this one. But why are we getting to look? Why are we getting the consideration? It's certainly not because I built enough credibility. I'm not a chairperson in, in the state. Um, I'm a young freshman from South Texas. But we've gotten the attention of some very important people. Yeah. You know, some very important operatives, heroes. Uh, among the people we've spoken with here in this office uh, about this issue, who were willing to put themselves out there to address the problem and possible solution are people who are not naturally extroverts. These Navy SEALs, they don't like attention. They shy away from interviews. Uh, we even had a Congressional Medal of Honor winner come here and say, this is the research we need. And it's very hard to ignore a winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, um, the type of person that admirals and generals salute first. So people have gravitated towards us. While we've been doing the research, people sought us out was saying, you know, I'm, I'm from another state, but I heard about your bill. Yeah. Uh, how can we help? Share your information with us. You know, what, what are we missing? What, how do we need to better address this? And, and showing them the language, um, talking about approaches. And, and thankfully, it mostly has aligned with what our initial vision was a very conservative, narrowly tailored bill to address really one thing on a very select group of patients. Yeah, And it certainly doesn't hurt to have uh, Governor Perry willing to call a few people and shake a few hands to say, I really need this and you need to support this representative. Yeah. The, does the bill, is it unique to psilocybin in the study or is MDMA involved in any way? In the study itself, it will only be psilocybin. And the reason why is we were originally going to include MDMA. We found a number of, of articles um, from other countries that are currently studying it. Uh, mm -hmm. Plus, there will be a future study that has not been published 
uh, that is underway currently. And we didn't want to duplicate that. And because we know money is a component of any study to do it right, we didn't want it to derive funds from psilocybin if we didn't have to. Uh, so since M- MDMA, for example, is already being studied, why not instead use that money to increase the pool of participants in the psilocybin study? Yeah, makes sense. For people who maybe are listening to this and have never heard about any of this before, you know, they when they think about psychedelics, they think about Woodstock in, in the 60s. What for, for you know the anecdotal stories you're familiar with for for veterans who are who have are, are experiencing or have experienced severe trauma PTSD, and I know there's a lot of mystery around what is happening in the brain when this is effective effectively healing their trauma or at least uh, really helping the people who are taking it. What seems to be going on? What about this substance is potentially so? Um, Revolutionary might be too strong of a word, but but so unique in its ability to to really help. You know, I, I've never experienced uh, any kind of tripping uh, that we heard about <laughs> taking place during Woodstock, and certainly there will not be any music being played <laughs> during the therapy sessions. Um, <laughs> what we understand at this point happens is uh, your your brain is very focused. In other words, it's not you're not hallucinating about what's happening but rather your memories are being drawn to the fore and you're able to see them and, and pull out the detail. And anytime uh, I, I imagine when somebody sees a picture um, of, of a loved one or an event, they, they will remember that event. Now, I mean, when, when I see a picture of, of, of a deceased friend, I, I, I'm both happy and sad uh, you know, happy because I rem- have the memory, sad because I realize that's all I have. Uh, but it might trigger other things as well. For patients who are undergoing this treatment, when they are receiving the effects of the psychedelic, it's more than just the memory. It's it's almost like reliving the moment or moments that you need to address. And, and oftentimes for these these patients, these veterans in particular, it's not just one moment. It could be one very large moment, but it could be many many moments. Uh, and some veterans have been able to deal with that. And I don't want to discount uh, those veterans who have been who've gone through treatment, uh, either with the use of psychotropics uh, or other substances or without substances, and just they were able to face their demons and, and, and still have them as part of their life, but being able to be functional and, and, and moving on. This is not necessarily for them, though, if they would like to one day be a part of this, I'm not going to discourage them. Rather, this is for those veterans who are at the end of the rope. Hmm. Uh, I, I heard this, this quote when I was a kid, and I didn't quite understand it, that a, a drowning person will reach even for a sword to hold on to. Yeah. Um, we, we don't need those swords. We, we need something else, a different lifeline to, to pull them up and, and let them know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And, and that's why this bill is important. Um, and I think that as more people learn about it, they, it becomes self-evident that this this is this is a good thing. And then soon after that, the anger comes of why aren't we doing this already? And that actually speaks largely to the types of policies that this office advocates: finding problems that exist in, in this state, asking why doesn't this already have a solution. And putting forth a solution. So it's, it's not just this. I, I had a younger brother who was disabled. So 
I would typically get very upset when you see a vehicle parked in a disabled parking spot that clearly does not belong to a disabled person. Uh, I shared a picture uh, with with my staff here of a giant green monster truck taking up two disabled parking spaces to which my legislative director, Logan Davidson, said, oh yeah, I, I knew somebody in college that would do that because they would need a flatbed tow truck to come and get it. And typically those are not around. Hmm. So someone is parking um, without any possible action taken against them. Um, but what happens when somebody who is truly disabled needs a parking spot and this vehicle has taken up two? Uh, a vehicle that's easily lifted and maybe about three feet off the ground to get into the door. That's not what, an, in my experience, what a disabled person would drive. Yeah. Um, so we certainly addressed that with some legislation that was uh, accepted and has moved forward already to the the other chamber. Yeah. So I, I think part of, of my role, and maybe that's a reputation I develop, developed at the house, is I'm here to try to solve problems. Uh, I'm not here to make a name for myself. Uh, I'm, I'm here to improve both the lives of my constituents, but those are the lives of, of people I don't know uh, in a way that I think will be beneficial to them. Yeah. I think I, you you hit on this earlier that that um, I think you were mentioning there was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner who who has it, uh, spoken about or is familiar with, with this piece of legislation specifically. And I, I think those anecdotes tend to be what have the capacity to potentially change people's minds once you really can empathize with what this person who has sacrificed so much uh, is dealing with on a day-to-day basis, what hell they're, they're living in uh, and what these options might, how, how they might be able to help them. Um, did that individual have experiences with psychedelics that helped him specifically, or is he just more familiar with the, the literature and thinks it would be a good thing? Um, not to put him in, <laughs> at risk of any professional uh, criticism. Let's just say he's very grateful for this area of study. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I say that is because of timing, he was unable to testify at the committee hearing. Mm. But I believe his testimony would have been at least as moving as that of the other special operators. And what I mean by special operators, Navy SEALs, uh, Green Berets, who did testify. One uh, Green Beret who testified in particular uh, had a, a few members shed a tear in, in recounting uh, what he lived through when he came back, that being able to list every type of medication he was prescribed and knowing that none of them worked and he finally got so frustrated with them. And that's not an unusual feeling, this feeling of frustration and hopelessness that he stopped taking them, you know, had the other thoughts of an alternative way out, but realized that's not what he wanted to do if there was a chance for something else. And thankfully he had friends who pointed him in the direction of the psychedelic treatment. And he is grateful for it. He is living an incredibly productive life. He's a, a motivational speaker. Um, he, he's the type of person that we would invite to yeah. uh, any event to, to make us all feel good about ourselves. And and if it takes a bill like this to make 150 members of the House feel good about themselves, and we can keep moving forward, well, by all means, let's, let's spread our message to all 50 states and see if we can make everybody feel a little bit better. It, I, frankly, I think if it does fully pass, it, I mean, it, it, this coming out of this state as well, I think would reverberate around the country because I think it would take other states that maybe look to Texas as a uh, standard bearer for 
um, mimicking potentially in, in other states. Who knows? Last question I want to ask you is about uh, what you, maybe two last questions. The first one would be, if this does pass, what will be available to people who are suffering like this that isn't available now? Is it unique to veterans or who, who will be um, eligible for these kind of, uh, to, to, in, to this study? So currently the, what we think will likely happen is after this bill passes and, and assuming that the appropriate funding also is included in the appropriations budget, the Baylor College of Medicine will be working with a veterans hospital in Houston. I I am not uh, the decider of who the participants will be in the study. That will likely be a collaboration between both the hospital um, and the Baylor College of Medicine a researcher. I, I'm, I'm guessing they will want to have a both a control population uh, who will be given a placebo uh, and then the actual study uh, participants who will receive the real dose. Uh, the patients won't know which. Um, I imagine at some point when they advertise for the study within their patient group, you know, the, the Houston Veterans Hospital is enormous. It is the largest one in the state, and Texas mm-hmm. has probably the largest veteran population in this country. Uh, but it won't be for everyone. We, we just financially can't can't do that. And two, we're trying to get this information out. Yeah. Uh, so it will, I, I can't tell you how many patients it will be, depending on, on the, the money amount at the end. Uh, but we know that the veterans community will be watching this study. And certainly those participants will be sharing what they learn. And I think the important part here globally is at the end of the study, we will have information that we can put together with that study of the ketamine and MDMA to see which treatment is the best. When speaking to one of our local anesthesiologists who currently uses ketamine to treat PTSD in veterans, he says, yes, this treatment does work, but my patients and I think that the psychedelics will be even better than this. And this is a medical professional who uses this treatment daily. Uh, Once we have that information, and because I do think Texas can be the leader in this, I think, if not other states, I think that the U.S. Congress could likely take this on at a larger scale and certainly put the resources that are available you know, Texas, we, we have a balanced budget every cycle. Uh, we will use every dime, and when in doubt, we will save our, our dollars. Our rainy day fund is extensive, even though it's been raining for a number of years. <laughs> uh, we're very grateful for what's being considered now uh, to do this. This is a, a topic I'm sure was not on the governor's uh, predicted list of high-priority bills to come out, and it's one that has gotten the attention of, of the governor, a number of senators who are very excited by this, who didn't know anything about it, are very curious, but more importantly, they're excited that the veterans community has come out so strongly for it. Yeah, uh, We had no opponents during our, our hearing. And uh, it, it just goes to show that we have worked this bill very hard, uh, not just with our own caucus, but with the other side as well. And remind people, this is a veterans. And, and some of our, our strongest advocates on the House floor whipping votes have been my Republican colleagues, especially mm. those that have a military background, saying we absolutely need this. Mm. Uh, and I don't know why we haven't done this before, Yeah, which is a very common 
call to action. It, it strikes me in talking to you that, I mean, you're, you're a freshman here and I worked in the startup world for a long time and there's a common idea in Silicon Valley that I think in business in general, that if something is not being addressed, it often takes something brand new or a brand new person with new ideas to show up and innovate and, you know, bring conversations to the fore simply out of newness that just were not acceptable, that were not happening prior. And I I used this word before, but I I really admire the work that you're doing. And I don't know if it's naivete, but uh, just the audacity to follow what I'm sure is both your head and your heart and in trying to do this. And I, I have no doubt that if this passes and gets implemented, uh, it will begin to save lives. Um, in closing, I would like to ask you just to speak on anything about this that you think are misconceptions, are stigmas that need to be addressed, are just points of just educational ignorance in the public that are necessary or important for people to know about to be open-minded about this um, to uh, to try to begin to help s- some people that might be involved in this study. You know, I, I think you you alluded to something earlier, which I think encapsulates why there's a natural opposition to this type of, of topic. Psychedelics have a stigma, and and perhaps even now um, we see an era in American history. A culture of people who just said, just be happy, stop worrying about things. And that's in direct conflict with our capitalist ideals of, no, no, if you want to be happy, you have to work very, very hard every day, save your money, invest properly, buy a house, raise a family, and then, you know, repeat uh, over and over again, as opposed to the, the counterculture, which was, you know, live day by day, you know, love each other. And I would like to find, uh, a world here where we can combine those two if possible. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we burned the candle at both ends trying to provide for our families, uh, working hard for just a couple of hours of relaxation and only to wake up the next day and re- repeat the cycle. Uh, because of that criticism of the counterculture, we have criminalized substances that were created with benign intention and we abandoned that for decades imagine how many lives we could have saved uh, had we at least maintained the research just kept studying and you know looking back now i'm not looking backwards for a solution but rather i think big problems require bold solutions and and maybe it's because i'm <laughs> i guess i'm a, a a newish member from south texas um, whose dad only finished the sixth grade. I just don't know any better. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it takes people who have maintained that kind of sensibility. I, I can tell how much this means to you um, to lead with that. And I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people in the public who you will never meet that I really appreciate you putting voice to this. Um, and I, I really hope that this state leads the way in this kind of research and I'm very optimistic that if we do, um, a lot of people that you probably will never meet in the future will benefit from this uh, and will have hope in a hopeless place in their life. So um, I really appreciate the time and I really appreciate more than that, just your focus on this and your um, 
audacity and courage in in, um, in moving this forward. And I, I wish you all the best of luck. It was really great to meet you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you, man.